So, we're going to look at the full context for these verses in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to start at where we left off last week. We left off at verse uh, 19. No, that's not right. We left off at verse... Well, we did leave off at verse 19 of chapter 14. We're starting today... Um, no, we left off at 20, 25. Yeah, there it is. 26 is where we're starting at today. So what I hope to do is go 26 through the end of the chapter, which is not going to be that hard. Um, he says several things, but what you're going to notice uh, is what he says about women. So make sure, let's talk about the broad context. He's still talking about worship. Hold on to that. He's talking about using tongues and prophecy in worship. We've seen that, right? He's been talking about worship since chapter 12, verse 1. And we are, we are now in 14, 26 and following. So he's been talking about worship for quite a bit. Um, so it's clear he's talking about worship. He is um, talking about abuses in worship. He's been talking about abuses concerning um, um, both tongues being used too much and prophecy not being used enough. That's the context. You know that because um, you've been reading well for many, many chapters. Now look at verse 26. He's actually bringing the discussion of worship to a close. At the end of what we call chapter 14, uh, the discussion of worship will be ended. So we're getting close. Beginning at verse 26. What then, brothers? Obviously, he's talking about all this other stuff he's been saying about worship. What then, brothers? And this is a fascinating verse. Here's a picture of what worship in the early Christian community looked like. We don't have a lot of those pictures. Uh, again, keep in mind a house church. There were no church buildings in the first century. Um, they either used um, some public space, like in Jerusalem until 70 AD, they did use some of the temple precinct. But in the Gentile world, like here in Greece, it would have been a large enough house to have, have housed a house church. So, you know, maybe 20 or 30 people. So these are house churches. Worship was happening in house churches. And here's a picture of what the worship would have looked like in, in Paul's day. Uh, he says, What well, then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn. We know what a hymn is. They were actively being used in the Christian community. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is an example of, a, of an early Christian hymn that Paul uses, Paul quotes in Philippians. So we know what a hymn is. Um, a hymn is um, you know, something that's sung, recited, written about God, or something we write or want to say to God. That's a hymn. A lesson. We still use that phrase in worship here in traditional worship. Uh, Wesley, we have a first lesson and a second lesson, usually in Old Testament and New Testament. Um, so a lesson is a passage of Scripture. Next, you see what's in the order of service, a revelation. This is where somebody would have, either through tongues or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, uh, would, would, would receive, uh, or prophecy, a word from God to be delivered to the congregation. Uh, lessons, a written down a message from God, such as what I got in my hand. That's where you get your lesson from. But a revelation is a direct communication from God that's then offered to the body. So it's even plugged into the order of service here. A revelation, 
a tongue or an interpretation. So you have this center of the worship where people are speaking in the mind of God, people are sharing words with each other from God. And then, of course, he says what he said over and over and over since 12.1, let all things be done for building up. That's why, you know, most of what he says about the gift of tongues is it's not very edifying for other people. And again, you're going to see in this passage another reference to where Paul is speaking of tongues as a, as a private prayer language. But there is also tongues as a revelation of a message delivered to God that interpretation is necessary. That's why you see a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most. So again, when you have this, it's the, the, this service was sort of spontaneous, but not completely. It feels kind of Methodist to me. It's spontaneous, but not completely. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's spontaneity, it's some space in the service, but there, there's boundaries. So yeah, there's this spot in the center of the worship where revelations are coming from God. If anyone's speaking a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, most of three, and each in turn, and that someone interpret. So it's a very orderly process of revelations coming from tongues. Um, so church worship order is not something moderns invented. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Again, tongues. If there's not interpretation, if you're not saying it for the sake of other people, he says, and notice what he says, um, keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. There's tongues as a prayer language. You know, and again, I've said several times, John Wesley was a little unique for his day in that he didn't condemn speaking in tongues, uh, but he was very much like Paul. He thought it was something better for private worship, not, not really something that's very useful in public worship. Um, and that's where Paul, again, is referencing tongues as a prayer language. So there's, there should be differentiation between tongues as a revelation that need to be interpreted and tongues as a prayer language. Uh, usually, if you get a chance to hear tongues, most of the time in a charismatic Pentecostal setting, you're hearing tongues being used as a prayer language. And that's why you good biblical Christians will always say, well, where's the interpreter at? And they say, there's not one. This is not that kind of tongues. This is the tongues as a prayer language, um, which obviously benefits the person praying because other people around them, they don't know what you're praying. They can't understand what you're praying. It really is spirit speaking to spirit. And that's why it's more pro for, for private devotion and worship. That's why he says, let him keep silent church and speak to himself or speak to God. And again, even if you're, and I think I've told you, I've had members of my church that had the gift of speaking in tongues, good state, traditional Methodist churches. And, you know, uh, nobody else would have even known they were doing it. I had one lady, I had one lady who speak in tongues when she, in that church you came up, you knelt for communion. Uh, in that church, every time she came up and knelt for communion, she would speak in tongues. And I even watched her get slain in the spirit. She would lay against her husband. Everybody thought, boy, your wife is praying a long time. You know, but she, she was a mature enough Christian. She knew what was, that was happening for her sake at the communion rail. You know, it wasn't happening for her sake. And she just did it very quietly and very privately, and it was to God. Um, so, you know, that's what Paul's saying here is if you do it in corporate worship, um, realize you're speaking to God. You know, so, you know, it needs to be quiet. It needs to, that's why if, if tongues are happening, it is, it's very appropriate for tongues to be happening. Nobody else know it. So that, that's kind of the Methodist 
way of, of speaking in tongues. And you're going to see something again at the very end when Paul summarizes. He's, he summarizes something about speaking in tongues uh, in a very um, Methodist way. He didn't know that. But we, we've appropriated and claimed it. What, the, way he, 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 the way he gives his summary concerning speaking in tongues is, is, is something that uh, many of us Methodists are very, very comfortable with. So you've heard him say, you know, speak to himself, speak to God. Verse 39, let two or three prophets speak. That's prophecy, speak in the mind of God. Let two, two or three prophets speak and the, other, and the others weigh what is said. You should always weigh what the prophets say. Uh, sometimes if they just sit on Facebook, people believe it's true. But you need to weigh what people are saying, especially when they claim to be speaking uh, for God. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So receive. Um, if someone has a revelation of God for you, receive it. Listen to it. Um, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That's important. So here's, he's kind of lapsed into talking about prophecy. He's a much bigger fan of prophecy. He's lapsed in talking about prophecy. Uh, he's talking about personal prophecy here. You notice if someone delivers a prophecy to you, listen to it. Um, uh, that lady, uh, the lady that used to pray in tongues, and uh, a couple times was slain the spear and just laid against her husband uh, uh, at that particular church. Um, that same lady spoke a word of prophecy over me. Uh, at that time, I hadn't heard a lot about it, but she said she had a word for me from God. And uh, I, she, she understood me because she uh, wrote it down for me, which was great. Uh, she wrote down a word that she had for me from God. And uh, again, about me and future and life and um, I'm glad she wrote it down because I still have it. I know exactly where it is. And I'm not going to say what it says, but I will say it was about a paragraph and it has now been 22 years. And a lot of it has come to pass. Um, so there's personal prophecy. There's prophecy to a congregation. God can speak through human beings. I'm kind of assuming you'll accept that. Uh, God can speak through human beings. Um, Paul's accepting that. Uh, the Corinthian Christians are accepting that. You see all of his boundaries and his rules. Um, anyway, verse verse thirty one. Notice uh, he, he wants everyone to be in you know to be encouraged. Um, but then he says, "Let the spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophets." Uh, I've already said that to you. I've quoted that to you several times. Um, anybody that knows anything about Bible and gifts of the Spirit, they're not. That, I, I want most of us won't use the phrase "ecstatic tongue," because the word "ecstatic" or "ecstasy" means you have to step outside of yourself. So it's not technically an ecstatic tongue. Or if you have an ecstatic experience. I think the use of the word ecstatic implies you're not in control, you're not in charge, you may not even remember, you may not know what you did or said during. That, that's what I kind of think of an ecstatic experience, because it literally means out of oneself, out of one's body. So um, speaking, anything we do for God, we're in control of. We always have a choice to do it or not. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophets. You know, in other words... Elijah wouldn't have been at the local grocery store and all of a sudden start screaming about the, about the pagan god Baal in the middle of the grocery store. 
he, 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 had, he had control over when he prophesied about Baal. You remember, he, that was a big deal with Elijah. So the spirit of the prophets are under the control of the prophets. So whether they're speaking in tongues, whether they're speaking the mind of God, um, if God, if God gave me a message for you, it's still up to me if I share it with you or if I don't share it with you. Um, so the, the pro, again, this, you see the orderliness here, you know, if someone jumps up in the middle of a service and cuts loose and you're going to see a problem with that with a group of women in just a minute, if they jump up and they cut loose in the middle of the service, it's just not the right time. You know, you need to sit down and guess what? Be quiet. Be silent. But anyway, keep reading. So notice the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The next verse sort of sums up, and we Methodists love this verse, by the way. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You can actually translate it, but of order. God is a God of order. Uh, that, that's a good way to call someone down. God is a God of order, not a God of confusion. If you're causing confusion in a worship service, if you're ca causing confusion anywhere, confusion is of the enemy. It's not of God. Yeah, we love this verse. God is not a God of confusion, or not a God of confusion, but of peace or order. So you hear Paul being very, very open to the work of the Spirit. Probably, certainly, much more open than we are um, in our age, because I'm not sure we really believe in the Holy Spirit here in this world in the West. Um, I, you know, in the way, you know, that's why the revival, by the way, is happening so abundantly in places like Africa and Asia. There, they believe in the power of the Spirit. They believe in the spiritual world. They believe in the spiritual realm. They believe that the spiritual world and the spiritual realm has a lot of influence and impact on this physical world. And, you know, they, they, they believe that the spiritual world is as real as this piece of wood in front of me. But then when you cross over to the scientific West... I'm not sure y'all believe the spiritual world is as real. Actually, C.S. Lewis would say the spiritual world is more real than this physical world. That's why C.S. Lewis calls this stuff the shadowlands. You know, the, the spiritual world is the real world. But see, in the West, we've turned that on its head. Um, there, most Westerners have an a priori assumption, and they just, you know, that, that, that assumption a lot of Westerners have is miracles do not happen. Therefore, well, if you start there, you really are going to have a problem with Christianity. But that's exactly what's happening in the American church. That's why the people are trying to have that assumption, miracles do not happen, and be Christian at the same time, and that's setting yourself up for misery. Now, see, in, in a lot of places around the world, they already believe miracles happen, so they can embrace Christianity, and, and they don't have this big conflict in their brain. But in the West, in post-enlightenment scientific West, we have, to, we have to convince each other the reality of the spiritual world and the reality of miracles. Then we can work on the stress of this stuff. But if that's your assumption, there are no miracles because there's no spiritual reality, I'm not sure where we start at. But the West has that. Most of human history has not had that assumption, uh, such as Paul and these Greeks here in Corinth. Most of human history has not had that assumption. That's, that's really been a post-Enlightenment assumption. And uh, by the way, Enlightenment also came out of the life of the church. So we're not opposed to that. But like you see Paul here, we are very open people with boundaries. And I know our culture doesn't think you can do both, but 
Christian faith. Paul believes he, he, in some ways this. You look at this and you say, is it a charismatic Pentecostal service? Yes. But if I were to just write this and not tell them it was Paul and I show it to a Pentecostal or a charismatic, they'll think this is a bunch of dead Methodists making a bulletin that you had to follow on Sunday morning. For Paul, it's both. It's not one or the other. Just like for Christianity, we, we, we have accepted science and enlightenment. That doesn't mean we've rolled over and died. And we, we have not accepted the assumption that there's not a spiritual world. So we, we, we are always sort of in the middle of most things. But um, here, here in the, here in the um, even in Greek culture, they accept a spiritual world. But you see, you see sort of the, the boundary. He wants order. He wants um, decorum which is why he talks about the women. Now, as in all the churches of the saints. Now again, these, they're, out of, they're away from Jerusalem at this point. These are almost all Greco-Roman churches, Gentile churches with some, some Jews, because Jews are scattered around the world. So, um, you know, when he talks about all the churches of the saints, these are basically Gentile churches. The women should keep silent in the churches. That's all some people see or want to see from what Paul wrote. Um, for they are not permitted to speak, but there should they should but should be in submission to the law, uh, submission, but should be in submission as the law also says. And by the way, she had an important context. You see, law, your brain goes back to law of Moses. These are Gentiles. This is a Roman colony. This is just talking about Roman law, probably. The Roman law said, because a good Jew would tell you, there's nothing in Torah to tell women to keep silent. So he's not talking about Mosaic. He's not talking about biblical law. This is the, the cultural law of the day, the Gentile law, the Roman law. But should be in submission, as the law also says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, these people who think that, who want so badly to think that, means all women at all places and all times and all geographies and all periods of history. You know, uh, there, there's a few groups who believe that, and they're, they're now saying women can teach as long as they only teach other women. They need to read this whole book, and, and, and sometimes it does help. The reason I know Paul is talk, talking about a very specific situation here. What's going on? Is We know this, and I'll show you the evidence from the Bible. So we know this. What language did Paul speak when he was preaching? Greek, thank you. I just told you about four breaths ago what kind of colony this was. Who ruled the, the Mediterranean world in the first century of Paul? What empire? Rome. Who spoke? They spoke Latin. Greek was a worldwide language. It's called Koine Greek. That's why your New Testament Jews wrote it. So you had kind of like English is today, by the way. But um, the worldwide language, the common language of commerce and business would have been Greek. But if you were to plop down in a slum in Rome, they'd have been talking Latin, a form of Latin. Um, and then you throw some Jews in the mix, if you happen to be with some Jews or in, in, in the area of uh, Judea, Samaria, they would be speaking what? This is kind of a trick question, but get what you, give them what you think the answer will be. Hebrew, but they really, even by Jesus' day, Hebrew was the religious language of the Bible. They actually spoke Aramaic, which was a, a form of Hebrew. If you saw um, Mel Gibson's movie, it was in Aramaic. 
because that was street language, which was formed out of Hebrew. So here you got a culture more. By the way, you know what you call someone who speaks only one language? An American. <laughs> here, even here in the first century, around the Mediterranean world, there'd have been Greek, there'd have been Latin, and there'd have been some Aramaic, plus other stuff. On the day of Pentecost, when the, when the, when the uh, disciples speak in other languages, and then you see this list of where these people are from, that's at least 15 languages. Yeah, we, we Americans, we got one language when the world has to speak it, which makes my life easy when I travel. They all speak it. It's, it's become, it's become the, the Greek of the Latin world, of the, of the Latin world, the Greco-Roman world. So let's picture a house church. Here's the men and the women. We're Christians. We're obviously together because, here's your homework. Look at 11.3 and 11.13. That's where Paul has already given you, I've looked at now, but let me tell you, that's where Paul has already given you, because you're remembering this, that's where Paul has already given you rules about men and women prophesying, about men and women speaking in worship, about men and women having uh, the gift of tongues in worship. Paul's already told you, um, and he's already given you the, the rules about how women speak in worship, how women do tongues, how women prophesy. He's already given you that stuff. So he's obviously not turning around now saying, I, I'm, I'm having a mental block. I don't remember what I said two chapters ago. So now women, you don't ever open your mouth. That's why we know he's not doing that. So what's he doing? Well, you're in a house church. There's three languages present. Paul would have been speaking in Greek. The men in the room... Um, would know Greek because that was the commercial, that was the international language, that was the language of commerce. Plus, the world at that time educated their men. They would have known Greek. So here's Paul talking in Greek. Here's here's um, men hearing the Greek. Well, the wives are there because first century church was radical. We let women be baptized. Never thought about that one, did you? They didn't let women be circumcised in the old covenant. Some of you shouldn't have to think too long about that one. But um, they, uh, we let women be baptized. That we had to make that decision in the first century church. So, you know, women are in our orders of service. They're here. We've already told them how to prophesy. We've told them how to speak in tongues. The, the first century Christian movement was very women liberating for the first century. So these women are here. Paul speaking, the men's understanding, the women there who are not educated... They're probably only speaking Latin. So guess what they're doing? You know, if I'm preaching on Sunday morning, and all you women the whole time I'm preaching are looking at the men saying, what's, what's he talking about? What's he saying? What's that mean? I would say stop it. I'd say women be silent in the church. Um, go home. Notice what he says. Go home and ask your husbands there to translate. But please let me finish talking about what I'm talking about. And that's why he's just talking about, a, it's clear he's talking about a specific situation. Now, I know you can imagine disruptive women, but a specific situation of disruptive women in worship, because he's been talking for two chapters about worldly worship services. So he said, yeah, I mean, if men started doing this stuff, guess what he would say? Men, be silent in the church. Uh, you know, if you men start doing it, I'll call you down after I call the women down. I mean, please don't have your, don't do your own little Bible studies out there while I'm preaching. I mean, that's just discombobulating. Don't do that. So we know what Paul's saying here. 
He's only talking about a specific group, a specific occurrence, because he's not going against what he's already said in 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and that's why to say all of a sudden, well, Paul says women must keep silent in the church, therefore women can't be ordained. Paul says women keep silent in the church, therefore women can only teach other women. They're not reading this man. Go back and read chapter 11 where he's already given rules to how women prophesy, which may just be preaching, prophesy in public and, and speak in tongues in public. So, um, yeah, context is important. It's really important. And we know what's going on here. Okay, wrap up. Uh, so it's this pretty clear way of saying. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? He's getting a little arrogant right now. He's mad at these people. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that thing that the things I am writing to you as a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What is he saying to the people there? If you're disagreeing with me, I'm having a really hard time with it, is what he's saying. Um, you actually can translate that last verse. A lot of people don't like to do this because they don't like to think of Paul saying this. But you can actually translate that last verse something like, let him who is ignorant stay ignorant. And that's the way he's kind of approaching this concept if you disagree with him. And then he does summarize verses 39 and 40. He summarized, summarizes chapters 12, 13, and 14. So my brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy because he's made the case that's the most important. Earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's sort of the Methodist position. Hinder not, um, help not. I think it's the way we say it. I don't hinder it. I don't encourage it. I don't stop it. I don't support it. It's, it's, it's probably, a, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift, probably for private devotion. Um, worship needs to be orderly. God is not a God of confusion. Uh, all this stuff that Paul has said. Um, so that's why he summarizes by saying, um, he says, he earnestly desires prophecy to be happening and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Remember he said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. He said, uh, I want all of you to speak in tongues. But he wants, it's, it's one of the minor, minor gifts. And then he says, and this is such a Methodist verse, but all things should be done decently and in order. So um, yeah, he's not just about loose, completely spontaneous worship. He, he, he wants it ordered. He wants it organized. Uh, everything has its place. He wants it for the edification of the community. Um, and he doesn't want anybody disrupting that, including disruptive women or disruptive men or disruptive people from Cyprus or whoever. He doesn't want anybody disrupting that. And he would say to people, you know, keep silent. So with... Um, that being said, um, I am a little I'm way over time.